0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Unemployed Workers Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show
1: between 5.30 and 6.30pm.
0: Here on 3CR Community Community Radio. Radio.
1: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
0: for the unemployed and underemployed.
1: Everyone Everyone in in our our community has
0: value. Hi, Anne. It is Friday the 22nd
1: of January. This is our second year of doing this show now on Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
0: Yeah, we're old hands now. Yeah. 2021. I keep having to change my zero to a one when I write the date.
1: <laughs> it's, it's the time of the year when you're on your computer and you're entering in dates and you have to keep on going back and correcting everything.
0: You know, Speaking of the years going by, do you realize it's been a whole year since you and I, back in January 2020, were at the Modern Monetary Theory-based conference, at which in person there was Stephanie Kelton speaking, an economist from America. And it was a sustainable prosperity conference in Adelaide put together by Dr. Stephen Hale and his crew. And it's been a whole year and I was hoping the world would be saved.
1: Ah. (laughs) Yes.
0: I was hoping that everyone would be understanding that the government has no financial constraints on what it might do about getting to zero carbon emissions.
1: That that sustainability conference was, was fantastic. There were people from all over the country from diverse backgrounds attending it. It fills you full of optimism and you think that the world is going to change very quickly. But what's needed is change in leadership,
2: mm-hmm.
1: having people in power who are making decisions so that people like you and I and our listeners, Larry and Larissa, uh, can spring into action and and, uh, and take up the cause. I think there's a lot of people, and I think there's a whole bunch of people who can barely contain themselves.
0: Uh, First of all, we're going to get our grounding in some of the macroeconomic ideas that will feed into that. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. So today, Kevin, we are going to go back into that looking glass world of monetary policy, which seems to involve our central bank known as the Reserve Bank of Australia, or the RBA and we'll be hearing that word reserves again, um, seems to involve the RBA doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things with bonds. And all this buying and selling of bonds can get quite confusing. And I think it gets confusing partly because mainstream economists and commentators, they seem to have some odd ideas about why the government, which issues the currency, would also be messing around with these bonds. And I think also many mainstream commentators seem to misunderstand just what the RBA is up to. And then also, as economist Stephen Hale points out during our conversation with him last year, the buying and selling of bonds interacts in some complex ways.
3: The system doesn't have to be complicated. It could be much simpler, but the system is complicated. At the moment, for example, we have the government spending dollars into existence, taxing some of them out of existence, and then auctioning treasury bonds to cover the difference. At the same time since March, we've had the Reserve Bank buying up a significant proportion of those treasury bonds that the treasury's just auctioned. So the government's put dollars into the system through spending, they've taken those dollars out of the system, by allowing us to convert them into bonds. The RBA has then put the dollars back into the system by buying some of those bonds. But the RBA also still doing uh, overnight transactions on the money market where it sometimes then takes some of those dollars back out of the system that it had put into the system, which the Treasury had previously taken out of the system, having spent into the system beforehand. You get the idea, you just get a headache. It's complicated. <laughs> It's ridiculously complicated.
0: It's easy to lose your way in the thicket of macroeconomics. It's complicated, and that's why you might need a guide to help you through it all. But, of course, you always want to choose your guides carefully, and our preference are guides who are familiar with modern monetary theory. And so, to this end, I thought we might call upon one Andrew Chergwin for guidance. Now, Andrew, did I just say your last name right?
4: Yeah, you did. the The thing about my last name is that it's from a nice, obscure bit of England. If you go to Mausel, which is spelt mousehole in Penzance, mm-hmm. you'll find a whole graveyard full of people with that surname. Like, we're all smugglers and pirates when it goes back far enough. Like, Pirates of Penzance, that's all my relatives and cousins, like, way back for (laughs) 200, 300 years.
0: Now, surely your pirate heritage is not why you got involved in modern monetary theory, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into it.
4: Okay. I just read a lot. That's kind of it.
0: So you're not an economist yourself.
4: I'm not an economist by trade.
0: Like us, we're always saying that on this show, we're not economists, but we do have an interest in the macro.
4: Yeah, so my, my specialty is um, abstract mathematics and obscure bits of chemistry. I've been a high school teacher, an R&D tax consultant. I've done game writing. I've done kind of like anything and everything. And I'd say probably about eight years ago, I found Bill Mitchell's blog and I just started reading it. Um, like, I studied serious maths, right, the kind of stuff that makes most people just have their heads spin. Um, all the maths on Bill's Mitchell's website made heaps of sense. Mm. And I'd already read chunks of stuff like Friedman and all the rest of it beforehand to try to figure out what's going on, and it always bugged me. And then when I went in and read the stuff that Bill was writing, I just went, oh yeah, that makes sense.
0: So, you basically got into MMT through finding Professor Bill Mitchell of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity in Newcastle. Yeah. You found his blog online.
4: Yeah. So, I ended up finding his blog. And from my background in kind of hard maths and science, the thing I was always looking for was, does the system setup work? And once you know that that system setup works, are the things that go into that true? Mm. If these things at the start are true, then as long as the logic from those points holds, then the stuff at the end holds, right? It's like it's straight maths theory approach.
1: I guess the the interesting thing is that, is that if one of those things that we assume to be correct is incorrect, then everything that follows afterwards might also be based on an incorrect assumption. And and I reckon that happens a lot in the economy. Yeah.
0: So what you're talking about here, I think, is one of the reasons why I really want to use modern monetary theory to drill down into one aspect of the economy today. Which is an aspect called quantitative easing. And the reason I want to do that is precisely what you're saying. It's like pulling out the bottom block in this whole edifice (laughs) of macroeconomic theory. And it will, I think, show up some of the mistaken thinking that is behind uh, mainstream economics. Yeah. And I think it's also important to look at because, of course, in 2020, in response to the COVID pandemic, we saw the Reserve Bank of Australia start to do billions, with a B, billions of dollars worth of this thing called quantitative easing.
5: The Reserve Bank Board met this morning. We decided on a comprehensive package of further measures to support the Australian economy as it recovers from COVID-19. The Board views addressing the high rate of unemployment as a national priority, and it wants to do what it can do to support job creation. We face the prospect of a long period of higher unemployment and underemployment than we've become used to over recent times. In the RBA's central scenario, job creation is slow over coming months and the unemployment rate is still around 6% at the end of 2022. A sharp bounce back in jobs is unlikely, and it will take time to return to where we were before the pandemic. Given this outlook, the Board judged that it was appropriate to take further steps today to support the economy. Unemployment is a major economic and social problem and it damages the fabric of our society. So it's important that it's addressed. The Board recognises that in the context of the pandemic, the responsibility for job creation falls mainly on the shoulders of business and of government. But the Reserve Bank can and will make a contribution too. Today's package has the introduction of a program of government bond purchases. In particular, we're intending to buy $100 billion of government bonds over the next six months, purchasing bonds issued by the Australian Government and by the states and territories the lower interest rates and our plan to buy $100 billion of government bonds over the next six months will help people get back into jobs and it will support the recovery of the Australian economy. The RBA has a strong and broad legislative mandate for price stability, full employment and the economic welfare of the Australian people. Today's decision reflects that broad mandate.
0: Dr. Stephen Hale, he gave a webinar on quantitative easing last year, hosted by Modern Money Australia. You can just search on YouTube for Dr. Hale quantitative easing and you'll find it.
3: Quantitative easing had never been done before in modern times until it was introduced in Japan in 2001. The US Fed, the Federal Reserve, introduced quantitative easing immediately after the global financial crisis broke out in 2008. The UK followed suit in 2009 and the European Central Bank eventually implemented a quantitative easing policy itself in 2015. The Reserve Bank now owns a lot of government bonds. They owned about $15 billion worth of government bonds before introducing quantitative easing. So the extent to which the Reserve Bank of Australia owns government bonds has hugely increased.
2: I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. So
0: I'm wondering, Andrew, can you start us off by describing just what quantitative easing is.
4: In a very technical sense, quantitative easing is when someone swaps a bond for cash held at the Reserve Bank's deposit accounts. So all the big banks have a bank account with the Reserve Bank. Just like we have a bank, our banks have the Reserve Bank. When we get paid, your bank deposit is a lot like an Amazon gift card, mm-hmm. right? Or like an iTunes gift card. So your bank is a company, it has a bank account at the RBA. When it gets $50 for your wages, you get a $50 gift card at the bank. You don't get $50 at the RBA. No. What you can do later is say, here's my $50 gift card bank, give me a $50 bill from the Australian government, and they go, sure, that's the rules on how this works. They shred up that $50 gift card and give you a $50 bank note out of an ATM. You stick that in your pocket. So now you've got a $50 RBA note, mm-hmm. but you never had a bank account at the RBA.
0: So what we're describing then is this two-tiered system, isn't it? Yep. A bank that I would bank with, like the Commonwealth Bank or whatever, Yep. it in turn has a bank account at the Reserve Bank of Australia. Yep. And I keep hearing economists like Dr. Stephen Hale talk about exchange settlement accounts or ESAs.
4: So ESAs are the Commonwealth Bank's bank account with the RBA. Your bank has one major account at the RBA, and that is an exchange settlements account. The ES bit is just because the purpose of those accounts is to send money backwards and forwards to cover all the stuff you want to buy and sell and all the rest of it. So all the banks have these ES accounts. Mm -hmm. So you go to Woolies or Coles and you blip your card. Then at the end of the day... Woolies Bank and your bank are going to talk to each other, figure out how much each owes the other, and then figure out how much the difference is, and then they're going to transfer that to the other bank. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's the whole process. So, the ES accounts allow for that transfer between whoever Woolies banks with and whoever you bank with.
0: So, I've heard economists describe the money in those ESAs as reserves. Yep. So, getting back to the quantitative easing, which we said was when the RBA is buying bonds, can you describe what a bond is and where these bonds came from?
4: Originally, a bond was just a big sheet of paper and it would say at the top, I, whoever it is, owe the person who has this thing this much cash. Let's pretend it's a $100 bond. I offer a bond. I offer it to Anne. Anne buys it at $100. I agree that each year, Anne can come to me with this bond, and I will stick a stamp down the bottom and pay her 5 bucks. That's a $5 coupon rate on a $100 bond. Now, my bond might have five coupons at the bottom. So it's a five-year bond. Now, Anne might need to borrow some money, or might need some money quickly, so she might sell it to Kevin. Kevin's now got the bond. He's also got the coupons at the bottom as well, and they're 5 bucks a year. Right, So the bond when Anne got it was $125. The bond when Kevin got it was $120. So banks have a bunch of cash in deposits at the RBA. What happens with quantitative easing is they've also bought bonds at some point. There's reasons why they like buying them. And the RBA says to them, look, we'll buy them off you. And we don't care how many you want to sell. We'll buy as many as you want to sell. Here's the price.
3: It's an asset swap. You're just swapping apples for very similar apples.
0: Economist Dr Stephen Hale.
3: Government bonds are interest-bearing liabilities of the consolidated government sector while exchange settlement reserves. They're also interest-bearing liabilities of the consolidated government sector. So the difference between government bonds and exchange settlement reserves at the RBA is not a huge one. When banks and other investors own government bonds, basically they own transferable term deposits at the RBA. That's all government bonds are. If the RBA buys those government bonds, all that's happening is they're converting a term deposit at the RBA into a transaction account at the RBA. It's just swapping one safe financial asset for another. So you're just changing a term deposit. At the Reserve Bank, which is what government bonds are effectively for a transaction deposit. Now, what about the payment of interest on those government bonds? Our government, the Treasury, pays interest to the Reserve Bank of Australia on the government bonds that the Reserve Bank of Australia now owns. But that interest then becomes part of the profit of the Reserve Bank of Australia. And the Reserve Bank of Australia does not retain its profit, it pays its profit out in dividends. To its shareholder. Well, guess who its shareholder is? It's the government. So (laughs) dividends go back into the public account again. This nonsensical charade is pointless. Issuing treasury bonds to the private sector and then using quantitative easing to buy those treasury bonds back again is a pointless activity. (laughs) But what it does do is it makes clearer what MMT economists have said all along which is that the Australian Commonwealth government cannot run out of Australian dollars, given that it's a monetary sovereign currency issuer. Where are these exchange settlement account reserves coming from? From a keyboard like the one I'm sitting behind at the moment. Quantitative easing makes explicit something which was always true implicitly, which is that our consolidated government sector cannot ever run out of Australian dollars. This was always true. It's now more obviously true, it's obvious to everybody, that all the RBA is doing is using a computer keyboard to pay for these government bonds. But really, the whole thing is pointless.
4: Because I've got this teacher training, if people want to just... Do a little thing on paper at their end. It'll probably help make sense of it. I don't know if you and you and Kev want to do it at the same time. What you can do, right, is just mm-hmm. draw it. Draw. This
0: doesn't work well on radio, you realize.
4: Yeah, I know. But I'm going to describe through it in steps so that people okay. can do it at their end really easily.
0: Okay, everyone, get your pen and pencil at the ready.
4: So just grab any old bit of paper and something to write with. Draw yourself just a little table, two columns. That's it. On the left-hand side... I want you to put income and spending. On the right-hand side, we're going to put balance at the top because we're going to make a little profit and loss on the left-hand side and a little balance sheet on the right-hand side. So stuff that would turn up for you on the income and spending side is wages, it's power bills, all that goes on that left-hand column. That's money in, money out, daily in and out stuff. On the other side, on this right-hand side, is where your assets and liabilities would go. That's the technical accounting jargon. Stuff that would turn up on there is how much cash you actually have goes in that right-hand column. Your house, the value of your house in the market, would be a positive in that right-hand column. What you might owe for a home loan goes in that right-hand column. So they'll come in lots of these little pairs as well, right? So you have, like, the value of your house, the loan against the house, the value of your car, the loan against the car, your cash that you happen to have, your credit card debt, all of those would go in that column. Now, if we're doing this for a bank, we're going to basically put in that the bank has $100 cash. So we'll just make it that the balance column is going to have $100, and we're going to call it cash. Mm-hmm. And so label it cash on the right-hand side, so it's $100. Just
0: written $100 in my left-hand column.
4: Is that the left-hand column or the right-hand column?
0: Pay attention, Kevin.
4: Right-hand column. Right-hand column. You you put it in the left-hand column, Anne, and it needs to be in the right-hand
0: column. Oh, <laughs> I put it in the wrong column. Yeah, it needs to be
4: in the right-hand <laughs> hand column. Right. We're ignoring the left column because that's our money in, money out, and we're not talking about money in, money out. We're talking about bonds and assets and that sort of stuff. We're going to leave the left-hand column alone. We don't need to touch it at all. Mm-hmm. We can ignore it. Um, it's there to help remind you. This is how people look at the accounting of all of this, right? So there's money in and out that goes on the left, and then there's stuff I own and stuff I owe goes on the right. So you would write 100 cash in this right-hand column because you have cash to the tune of 100 bucks. The bank has way more than that, but that's where their ES balances would appear. Now, they might also have a bond... And let's make it a $50 bond, right? So they have a $50 bond. Mm -hmm. So you should have $100 cash, Mm -hmm. $50 bond, and that's in that right-hand column called balance. Now what quantitative easing tells the bank is, if you want to move that $50 bond to become $50 cash, we're happy to do that. Here, have the $50, we'll take the bond. So if you were the bank, just put a line through $50 bond, And then change the 100 cash to 150 cash. That's it. We've done quantitative easing. (laughs) That's really what it is, is you get a bond, you put a line through it, you turn it into cash. Done.
0: I have just put $100 cash in my right-hand column and $50 bonds in my right-hand column. And that was a column that was assets. Yep. So a bond can be thought of as an asset and cash can be thought of as an asset. And all we've done is swap one for the other.
4: Yep, what quantitative easing does is it swaps bond assets for cash assets.
0: Mm -hmm. So this idea of swapping, um, our governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, who's the guy in charge there, Mm -hmm. he does seem to be in agreement with economists like Dr. Stephen Hale because he says, oh, the government's not putting what economists call net financial assets or free money into the banks. And we can see that now with this swapping, like there is actually no new money going into the economy, even though he just said he's doing this $100 billion worth of quantitative easing.
4: Yeah.
5: Is the RBA now financing the government? The answer here is clear and simple. It's no, we're not. Today's decision does not change the long-standing separation of monetary policy and fiscal financing in Australia. The RBA is not financing government spending. The RBA is not providing finance to the government, but our actions are lowering the cost of government finance. It's also important to point out that the bonds purchased by the RBA will have to be repaid by governments at maturity. They'll have to be repaid in exactly the same way as they would if the bonds were held by others. The Australian government and the states and territories continue to fund themselves in the market as they should. Raising funds in the market is an important discipline and movements in market prices can contain valuable information. We want to avoid any possibility that uh, people see us as financing the government. I think if the government issues a bond that, that a week and we buy at the same time, uh, people could incorrectly assume we were financing the government. So we're very keen to keep away from any bond line that's just been tapped or issued.
3: The Reserve Bank is not giving away money to the banks for free. The Reserve Bank is not allowed to give stuff away for free.
0: Economist Dr Stephen Hale.
3: The Reserve Bank can buy and sell certain financial assets, including, as is obviously the case, Commonwealth government bonds and state and territory government bonds. The the RBA is not allowed to engage in deficit spending. That is something that the government does and the government can only do subject to parliamentary approval. That's why they bought all the parliamentarians back so they could vote. On the support package that some people like to call the stimulus package, the job keepers payment and the job seekers supplement, and all the rest of it.
4: In one way, the word money is very weasel wordy. You could look at a bond as like money, because it's a note. If my bank owed Anne's bank fifty dollars and it didn't want to pay with its cash at the RBA it might say to that other bank, I have a $50 bond. Would you take this instead? And that bank will probably go, sure, why not? So the bond can be money just as much as the $50 note in your pocket.
0: So we've established that quantitative easing is a asset swap, which means that even though they call it spending, it's not really putting new money into the economy. Let's just have a look at what they think they are doing. So why would they even bother with doing this QE?
4: So this comes down to um, what economists think banks do, that a bank has to collect money before it can loan money. Um, That has a technical term, the intermediary of funds. So they're a middleman.
0: That's how I always assumed it worked, like that the bank had to have money before it could lend it out.
4: (laughs) Right. And the version that MMT people go to, the bank doesn't ever check its wallet before it makes a loan. It never looks at its own wallet. Mm. You want 100000 bucks? they do a thing called loaning off their balance sheet. So if we go back to that little balance sheet that we had, mm-hmm. what the intermediary model tells you, is that you have to have $100 there before you can make a $100 loan. What MMT people, Warren Mosler and Stephen Hale say, is if you want to make a $2 million loan against our little bank there with $150 worth of cash, Mm -hmm. that can happen. They can make a $2 million loan. Because what's going to happen is, is that they're going to write on that balance sheet, $2 million that you owe the bank, and going to write down $2 million that they owe you in bank credit. So, plus two million, minus two million. Guess what? The two cancel each other out. The bank's in the same spot.
0: So, by an accounting trick, they've just created some money.
4: They've created heaps of money, $4 million worth of money to be exact. And they do it by what's called a balance sheet expansion. That's the technical name. We just did a balance sheet expansion. You can just write plus two million dollar client debt, minus two million dollars deposit owed. Mm -hmm. That's it. We just did a balance sheet expansion. Done. So, $2 million that you owe them, and they could sell that and move that on, and that's why it counts as money. And they've also made you $2 million worth of deposit account credit, which is also money. So, they've added $4 million worth of stuff onto their balance sheet, but when you add it all up, the bank's still only got $150 to its name. Mm. Now, what the bank is doing is checking are you a good bet for $2 million? Because if this all goes wrong, that $2 million asset evaporates and they owe $2 bucks to someone and they've only got 150 bucks to cover it. So the bank is taking a bet on if you are a good risk.
0: So the source of the money for the loan was not that it was sitting in the vault in the bank. It was their assessment of my ability to pay that money in the future.
4: Yep, their whole plan was, are you a good bet for this risk? The bank isn't looking at its wallet when it checks if you're good for a credit card it looks at your wallet it looks at your income it looks at your stuff now that's always part of why the reserve bank has an interest rate of like one and a half percent and your bank home loan might be five right so your credit card debt will be like 15 percent interest why because the bank believes that credit card debt is say 10 percent more risky than a house debt. Why? Because when you make a credit card debt, what do they have back from you? Nothing. If you make a home loan, one of the things you sign over in the home loan is the home that you buy.
0: They might get lots of pairs of shoes out of (laughs) you.
1: The banker might have a different um, shoe size, Anne, so that probably wouldn't work very well.
0: Dang it.
4: (laughs) I don't think the bankers are Imelda Marcos either, so it may not be appealing.
0: So, so so why does this matter when it comes to quantitative easing, this whole business of how banks make loans?
4: If you look like a bad risk to the bank when the bank has 50 bucks in its pocket, what's going to make you look like a good risk when the bank has 100 bucks in its pocket? Why does changing how much money the bank has in its pocket make you look like a good or a bad risk?
0: Uh-huh. So if a bank had one hundred billion billion in its pocket, (laughs) it's still not going to be more inclined to lend to me if I'm looking risky to it. Yeah.
4: So if quantitative easing is now giving all these banks big fat wallets cash, if you get rejected for a credit card, how is giving the bank $20 million going to make you look like they should give you a credit card?
3: Increasing. Bank exchange settlement account reserves like this, the banks have a lot more electronic cash than they did before. Some people think might be inflationary because it might mean the banks can suddenly go and do a lot more lending. If you've studied first-year economics in a conventional way at a normal university, you've probably learned about something called the banking multiplier. If the banking multiplier was anything other than a myth then hugely increasing banks' exchange settlement account reserves on an enormous scale would have been hugely inflationary. But it's not, because in our monetary system, bank lending is not restricted by the amount of reserves that banks hold anyway. When banks lend to you and I, of course, they create a loan, which for the bank is an asset, but they also create a deposit on which we can draw, which is the bank's liability. At the time the banks engage in lending, they don't need additional reserves. They only require those additional exchange settlement account reserves when funds are transferred from one bank to another. So putting more reserves in the system does not directly encourage additional lending by banks because the banks could have done the extra lending anyway.
1: You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. A show all about the economics and experience
0: of unemployment and underemployment. Here on
1: 3CR Community Radio.
0: So we've had a pandemic. We've got Governor Lowe making an announcement that they're doing $100 billion of quantitative easing. And what we're all assuming is they're doing that quantitative easing to make it more easy for businesses to make loans and that'll get the economy going again. This belief that banks need reserves before they can lend and that quantitative easing provides those reserves and that's simply not how banks lend. But now we've drilled down into what loans really are, which means it's not going to really increase productivity, So why would they bother with doing this asset swap? Why are they bothering with QE?
3: If the RBA buys a lot of government bonds, it drives the prices of those bonds up.
0: Economist Dr Stephen Hale.
3: Just like if there was a huge demand for anything, it drives the price of whatever you're talking about up. If the RBA decides to buy sufficient quantities of government bonds, it's going to drive the prices of those bonds up. And higher bond prices means lower interest rates on bonds. Driving the prices of government bonds up, putting downward pressure on interest rates or yields on government bonds is the RBA's intention. We've got a a lot of evidence on the impact that quantitative easing has on uh, financial markets and more broadly on uh, spending on goods and services and on the real economy. And that evidence is that even when it's done on a huge scale and it's been done on a vast scale down the years in Japan and to an extent in those other three, with the US and the UK and the Eurozone too, it's had a limited impact on, on financial markets. Central banks can control long term interest rates. This does have an effect on the stock market, for example, but at most a very weak one on the real economy.
0: So. We've done our asset swap, so we've got all these reserves sitting at the reserve bank and the people who have these reserves, I guess they're going to be banks and other kinds of institutions, they don't like reserves because there's pretty much no interest being paid on them. They don't have bonds, which pays a bit more interest, so now they've got to do something with those reserves. So what I've heard is that an effective QE is to bloat the financial system (laughs) because these reserves are running around looking for somewhere else to be invested.
4: Yeah. Think of it this way. There's two aspects to making money as a bank. One is making loans and collecting interest. The other one is usually buying and selling bonds and maybe playing around with exchange rates between currencies. The bank now has millions and millions of dollars sitting around in its pocket and it doesn't know what to do with its vast pile of money but it wants to make profits so if you're you know mr fox of lynn fox or you're any of the various people who you barely know who own vastly large amounts of everything maybe they would look at their stuff and they would go huh i have a really big savings account because i sold some bonds that i owned because i'm stupidly wealthy enough to own government bonds I just want to buy something that gets me good interest. Stuff that makes an income and stuff like shares because shares pay out dividends. Houses. So, for instance, you could build an apartment tower and sell the apartments.
0: That's another thing I've heard is that one unintended consequence of quantitative easing can be what they call asset bubbles. Yep. And we had assets in that right-hand column before.
4: Yep. If Mr Fox suddenly turns around and goes, I got $200 million to spend on houses, if all these people with large amounts of cash go around trying to buy houses to make money on buying a house and then selling it later, then the price has to go up. Otherwise, people stop making money out of it. And that's how you get a price bubble.
3: Modern monetary theory economists like me point out that there is no evidence of a stable and reliable relationship between movements in interest rates and movements in total spending in the economy and output and employment and inflationary pressures historically. And one reason for this is, of course, that when they cut interest rates, a factor that they're relying on in order for lower interest rates to feed through into an increase in spending and higher economic activity is people taking out more loans from banks and spending as a result, including mortgage loans, But as we often point out, that's a sugar hit for the economy at best, because once those funds are borrowed, then households have more debt, which is going to restrain their future spending. Monetary policy has an unreliable, an indirect, and sometimes when there's a lot of household debt already, a very weak or even perverse impact on total spending. Monetary policy, the use of lower interest rates in order to stimulate more spending, is never reliable. It sets up future problems because you are loading up households with additional debt, and it fails when you you need it. It doesn't add to the net financial assets of the private sector. Only fiscal policy does that. Fiscal policy puts money into the economy, which the private sector hasn't had to borrow into existence and so doesn't have to repay. Fiscal policy works if you want to stimulate more spending. Monetary policy can do so temporarily but is unreliable. And it becomes less and less reliable, the more and more debt that already exists in the private sector. And so you can cut interest rates and cut interest rates and cut interest rates, that you get to the point where interest rate cuts no longer work at all, either because interest rate cuts and financial deregulation have built up so much private debt, or because, People have good reason to be so pessimistic about the future, and of course there's a touch of this now that nobody wants to borrow for investment or consumption anyway.
0: So we've had a pandemic which has resulted in these lockdowns, which has resulted in the economy shrinking and in effect a recession. And so the reserve banks come along and said, Okay, amongst the many things we'll do is five hundred billion plus of quantitative easing or buying up bonds. You know, I could have sworn Governor Lowe said that addressing unemployment is a national priority, and yet at the same time he's saying, well, we can expect 6% for some time. You know, he sounded a bit depressed about that. (laughs) I wondered if that's because deep down he knows he can't do that much about unemployment, even if it is his mandate, because the money is just going into stocks and shares and asset bubbles, but it's not going into any productive part of the economy that would increase jobs and it's the part of the economy that really affects the average person.
4: Philip Lowe's kind of stuck in a bind. Philip Lowe's told your job is to play with how much unemployment there is to control inflation. Inflation's down in in the bottom. He would like to drive it up and he's done basically everything he can. Interest rates are absurdly low. I mean, when I was a kid, interest rates were 17%, right? We're now talking like half percent. And unemployment's not budging. So the question is, and this is the thing that Dr. Lowe is trying to get at, where he can't quite say that because, you know, he's kind of ratting out his boss in national media, which <laughs> is not good if you like your job. But the short version is is that if unemployment is low, no one's buying labor. No one wants workers. Why does no one want workers? Because no one wants to make more stuff to sell. So what Philip Lowe was going is basically, hey government, we need people spending more on people to do work. You have money, why don't you spend some more money getting people to do things? Like, I've done what I can, you do what you can do. Mhm. That's basically what he's trying to say without saying it.
0: I kind of do feel like when I'm listening to Governor Philip Lowe that I am listening to someone who is just clenching their (laughs) fists in frustration, but they can't say anything.
4: The government's letting us down. Mm. Let's just think about real stuff that we can do real things with. If we have 5% unemployment, there's no reason to let this happen. If we turned around and said, every time you pour a litre of water out of your tap, we're going to make you throw away 50 mils. That's the rule. We're going to set up taps around the country. So that if they pour out a liter, they'll actually only pour 950 mils into your container and 50 mils is going straight down the drain. You'll never see it gone. This is dumb. What? We do this with people. That's actually what they do.
0: That's a great image for how we are just throwing people down the drain. Yeah. And I guess what we're talking about here, what you're alluding to is what Dr. Stephen Hale talks about as well, which is this difference fundamental difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy and to the casual observer they both look like we're spending money but really they're not the same
4: no not not even close so fiscal policy is the government bought some stuff monetary policy is the rba played around with interest rates and bonds until the banking sector did what they were supposed to do the fiscal space is the government would like to put a high-speed rail from Brisbane to Melbourne. So it buys a truckload of concrete, rail, railway lines, land to put it all on, workers to build it all, electrical overhead wires, train carriages, stuff, right? So Philip Lowe's turning around and basically going, hey, we need the government to buy stuff.
0: Yeah, if you're doing the buying of stuff, and as you say, that includes labour, that's where you're really going to make a difference in unemployment levels.
4: Right. So if the government buys up labour to build a railway line, then the railway workers are going to buy takeaway from the local Chinese. If there's all these railway workers buying from the local Chinese joint, the local Chinese joint might go, you know what, we could do with the delivery driver now. So the government might buy, say, 10 people's worth of work, but then because that 10 people's worth of money starts spilling out other places, that might hire another five people. What Philip Lowe's talking about is stuff like, hey, um now would maybe be a great time to dust off some of those things that you said you couldn't do before and do them, right? Do NBN to everyone's house. Do a fast rail. Would you say that
1: the problem that we have is that we have a conservative ideology that is so fixed on the private sector that has shut out fiscal, the government sector, that they just will not allow the government to take up that
4: slack? Yeah. Milton Friedman. He basically said that whenever government does something, it does it badly. So government should do the bare minimum always because he thought government can't do anything good. And that idea has filtered through with the way that we run governments now. Um, Every time you hear a new government program, almost the immediate cries that you'll hear out, but that would be wasteful. Why don't we get the private sector to do it? Well, why did Friedman think it was bad? Because government does not make profit.
0: So Dr. Stephen Hale does seem to be essentially saying that as far as... Using quantitative easing to help us get out of this COVID-induced recession, uh, it's almost going to do nothing. Would you agree with that?
4: I can kind of one-up that. Mm-hmm. There's a US Fed Reserve Chairman mm-hmm. by the name of Mariner Eccles, I think is his name. Anyway, Eccles is his surname. I remember it because I listened to too much Goon Show when I was a kid in a car. Um, and I know that for most people, that reference just went sailing straight past. Not past me. <laughs>
2: Can I it, take uh, just a minute, I, I got it written down here on a piece of paper. <laughs> a nice man wrote the time down for me this morning. If uh, anybody asks me the time, <laughs> I, I can show it to them. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. So he said that making monetary policy to cause inflation is like pushing on the end of a string. That's <laughs> a good analogy. This is a guy who you would assume knows a reasonable amount how banks work. He was before all this monetarist stuff comes. I think Marion Eccles was like a late 19th century Fed chairman. Mm-hmm. What Dr. Philip Lowe is trying to politely say is um, the strings lying on the floor, we can't push on it anymore, <laughs> right? Like we have we have a bundle of string now. <laughs> we pushed it. <laughs> it's been pushed.
0: I've just got this image of, of Governor Lowe. Pushing away on this bit of string and just saying, come on, guys, this is not working.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Can someone do something else? I'm doing what I can.
3: But the RBA cannot give money away. The RBA cannot make welfare payments. Only the government can do that, subject to parliamentary authority. That's fiscal policy. The Reserve Bank Cannot change the net financial assets of the private sector. That's the job of Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg. It's not the job of Philip Lowe. So, given that quantitative easing does very little other than just make explicit that the government can engage in fiscal policy without any financial constraints, which we already knew, why do it? Well, because there isn't anything else that the Reserve Bank is allowed to do. If you are a central bank, and you believe that the government's fiscal response to an economic crisis is not significant enough to support the economy then you might cut interest rates down towards zero because you can't do fiscal policy all you can do is cut interest rates that in itself is not doing very much to support the well-being of ordinary people it's not doing very much to support the real economy to support employment no, but it's all you're allowed to do.
0: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So the idea that quantitative easing is the Reserve Bank of Australia buying treasury bonds and other kinds of bonds, and now they always say they're buying them in the secondary market and not the primary market. Yep. Now, I've heard mainstream economists denigrate this idea of the RBA buying bonds in a primary market, which means directly from the treasury. Right. They don't like that because they think that's printing money. They call that monetizing the debt. So, this distinction between quantitative easing and monetary financing seems to come back to some weird idea about the independence of the central bank, which Philip Lowe is very careful to assert as well. Yeah.
5: These bond purchases mean that the RBA is now conducting quantitative easing, or QE, similar to that of many other central banks. At the start, it's important to point out that all purchases will be made in the secondary market through an open auction process. The RBA will not be buying bonds directly from the government.
0: Why are they so careful to say we can't do them in the primary market?
4: Okay. So, the primary market is the treasury says we are selling bonds and then people go to the treasury and buy it. Um, I think the treasury has like a a select group of friends that it sells them to.
0: By invite only, I think.
4: (laughs) So, you need to know the right people, which basically means you have stonkingly large amounts of cash. The secondary market is when you buy them off anyone else who got them off the treasury. Mm Mm-hmm. So the bit that lots of classical economists get up to here is that they have this really rigid idea that the RBA is one thing and the Treasury is another thing. And one of the things that I did when I used to work with accountants is read a lot of tax law. It's boring as crap. I can't recommend it. (laughs) But you need to read it if you want to know how this stuff works. You need to read it and then we need to speak to you.
0: That's right. You can tell us.
4: (laughs) Yeah, there's that too. So if you read the Reserve Bank Act of 1959 – Here's a big surprise. The treasurer can ignore everything the reserve bank says and tell them what to do. That's actually in the act. If the reserve bank says, hi, we want to set cash rates at 1%, the treasurer can turn around and go, no, screw you, I want it at 10. Mm. And the reserve bank goes,
0: okay. That kind of undermines the idea of the independence of the central bank.
4: Hey, it gets better. How did Philip Lowe get his job? The treasurer gave it to him. How did the guy under Philip Lowe get his job? The treasurer gave it to him. In those meetings where we decide the rate, do you know who gets to sit in there? The Reserve Bank Governor, the Deputy Reserve Bank Governor, a member of the Treasury,
2: <laughs>
4: and some other people who are all, wait for it, decided by the Treasury. I'm a Federal Treasurer, and I'm going to get 12 people that I've chosen. They all know that I chose them, and they all know that when it comes round to choosing who sits in those seats, I get to choose again. We're going to put them in a room, and we're going to tell them, you're making decisions about the Reserve Bank. Now, how independent...
0: Andrew, you're destroying all my illusions about the independence of the central bank and the importance of the primary market and the secondary market.
4: If you if you read the Reserve Bank Act and come away from that thinking that the Reserve Bank is independent, I have a bridge to sell you. Okay.
5: You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR. And I'm Martin Watts. Professor of Economics at Newcastle University.
3: They haven't just been buying Commonwealth Government bonds, they've been buying State and Territory Government bonds too. On Mondays and Thursdays we plan to buy bonds issued by the Australian
5: Government and on Wednesdays we plan to purchase bonds issued by the States and Territories.
0: So Mondays is Fish Day and Wednesdays is Pizza Day. (laughs)
3: The purpose for doing this is to prevent the gap between the interest rate on state and territory government bonds and on Commonwealth government bonds skyrocketing during a period of time when the state governments are having to issue a lot of additional bonds. What that has done is it's helped the state governments finance themselves. And remember, they're not monetary sovereigns. There is default risk associated with them. And uh, investors are becoming more risk averse. When the crisis really hit and when Australia was uh, partially closed down, they would have been in trouble in terms of their financing costs were it not for the fact that the RBA has now bought their bonds. What that's done, the uh, interest rate that the states are paying on their debt has remained more or less constant. That's the result of the RBA backstopping the states.
0: So the states are not currency issuers. They're like us. They use the currency. So they, in fact, do have to use bonds as a way of borrowing money. But this reasoning does not apply to federal treasury bonds, because the federal government is a currency issuer. It doesn't need to use bonds to borrow money.
3: So what would I do? I would issue no more Commonwealth government debt securities ever. Consign Australian Commonwealth government debt securities to the dustbin of history because the fact that the government issues bonds confuses people. It makes it appear as though they've got something in common with corporate bonds, or even state government bonds, something in common with the debt of institutions which are not currency issuers, and face financial constraints, and could face insolvency risk. Of course, that's not true, as far as the Australian Commonwealth government is concerned. So the fact that the existence of Commonwealth government bonds confuses people and makes people think that the government could go bust, that the government genuinely does face a financial constraint, means we really should scrap Commonwealth government debt securities. We don't need them. And of course, under those circumstances, we can forget about quantitative easing as well.
0: Yeah, Stephen Hale does call upon the RBA to just stop doing (laughs) this quantitative easing. And he calls upon the Treasury to just stop issuing Treasury bonds because it does confuse people.
4: So let's pretend Kev is secretly a trillionaire, right? He gets invited to go to this Treasury bond party and he buys a bond for 100 million bucks. The RBA might turn around and say, hey, Kev... Those 100 million in bonds that you've got, they're probably worth like 105 million in a couple of years' time because of the coupons on them. How about I give you 102 million for them like right today? And if Kev goes, yeah, sure, then okay, what have we got? We've got the RBA gets $100 million of bonds off the treasury through Kev and pays 2 million bucks to Kev because Kev walked into the office and went, hi. Give me bonds.
0: That seems like an exercise in what Bill Mitchell calls corporate welfare. Right. Because our Kev, the entrepreneur, just made two million bucks for not doing terribly much. <laughs> yeah, because
4: he, he got an invite into the right room.
0: Uh, it makes them look like they're doing a lot of spending to help us all, but in fact they're not.
4: We
3: should be using deficit spending to allow the private sector to be in surplus, the private sector to net save and maintain the economy at full employment while limiting inflation. But that's the approach to economic management, which modern monetary theory economists have been calling for for more than 25 years.
0: So, Andrew, you know, I did dig you off Facebook because I saw that you were one of those people out there who would patiently, over and over again, explain to all the newbies coming into MMT how it is that the government doesn't raise its money by taxing, and how it is that their deficit is our surplus. And I really want to thank you for once again taking your time to bring MMT to the masses.
4: Nice speaking to you, Andrew. I'll catch you around, Kevin, Anne, and you'll see me making a loud noise on Facebook.
0: Okay, we'll see you back on Facebook. Goodbye. Yeah, so Stephen Hale does have a point when he says that these arcane operations with the central bank buying and selling bonds does confuse people. And all the time in the media, I come across attempts to explain what's going on with all this buying and selling of bonds, especially because the government's done so much of it recently. Early on in the COVID crisis, I did come across one conversation that occurred in a podcast known as QAV podcast, which is hosted by Tony Kernaston and Cameron Riley. And they were speaking with their guest, Nicholas Gruen, who is an economist and founder of Lateral Economics. Um, he's also the chairman of the Open Knowledge Foundation and a visiting professor at King's College London's Policy Institute. And he's a contributor to the blog Club Troppo. And he's also been an advisor to Senator John Button and he is regarded as the architect of the Button Car Plan, which reduced protections on the automotive industry in Australia. Uh, he served with the Productivity Commission and with the Business Council of Australia. So he's been around as an economist. So have a listen to this. But,
2: Tony,
5: as we saw,
0: Tony,
2: yeah, can, I, can. can I ask you a question that I don't understand? You say government's taking on extra debt. Um, yes. Who, who do they owe that debt to? Uh, well, Nicholas might be
3: able to answer better than I am, but I, as I understand it, they issue bonds to to, uh, to bondholders, and so the bondholders hold the debt. Theoretically, they could take on unlimited debt whenever they needed to, because because they're paying very little in interest rates to those bondholders.
2: In fact, what happens and what is happening now is that the reserve bank, the central bank buys. So the mm. government issues treasury bonds. The government itself borrows the money, issues treasury bonds. Those bonds are bought by the central bank. Or and by the market, and then the central bank typically sells down the tree. It 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 maintains some reserves, but it typically sells down those uh, bonds. And QE represents buying them back. So if if I'm following here, the government issues bonds, correct, which is creating money. That it's going to then sell to... A... Uh, no, no, no. The government doesn't create money. The government issues bonds. So the government borrows money using these bonds. Right. but it... And then the Reserve Bank make, uh, creates money to buy it and then uncreates the money when it sells them. So the Reserve Bank creates the money to buy the government's bonds. Uh, yes. Uh, and it wouldn't have done that in a big... It doesn't do that in a big way except in a crisis situation where the government might want to raise a lot of money quickly, but even then it does so on the understanding that it's temporary. Anyway, so does that, make, does that uh, work out for you, Cameron, as an explanation of what's going on? Yeah, but I, I'm stuck on this question of debt. So let's say this is a, for a 10-year bond. Ten years later, the government needs to uh, pay back the bondholders, they can just do the same thing all over again, raise more money back to pay account. off the bond. Uh, well, uh, if, if bond the central holders. bank will allow, them, if yeah. the central bank will allow them to, yeah, the central bank can say we have a we have an inflation target, uh, and uh, you know not only are we not buying your bonds, but we're selling some of the bonds that you've uh, that we bought off you in the past. Mm. Uh, so the central, you know, the, the, this whole thing is very definitely. Dependent upon the independence of the central bank.
0: Now, I don't want to pick on Gruen or this podcast in particular. I'm just saying that it's a typical example of what many commentators sound like when they're trying to explain why the RBA is buying bonds and why the government is selling some.
3: The system doesn't have to be complicated. It could be much simpler. But the system is complicated.
0: You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
1: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the sewer show on 3CR.
0: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
1: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
0: And I thank you, Kevin. No,
1: no, the pleasure was all mine.
0: Oh no, Kevin! The pleasure was all mine.
1: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
0: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one.
1: <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all, and I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So, if you've got all the pleasure, then what? I had no, I
0: had no pleasure. I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because you know
2: like, I don't mind you having pleasure that's great. You can have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the
0: pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that. We-